scriptures. So going to John chapter 18, starting in verse 11. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priest and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with him. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So we're going to skip uh, forward to verse 28. It's not that we're not going to preach on those verses. That will come next week, uh, but we're going to focus on these two passages today. So skipping to verse 28 through 40. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Pilate answered him, so Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it about me? Pilate answered, I, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting, that I might not be delivered over to the Jews." But my kingdom is not from this world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Yeah, we are looking uh, this morning at, it's, it's interesting how we're splitting this up. Uh, and, and like Justin said, we have done that because next week Pastor Ed is going to look at the verses we skipped over that are in the middle 
of this passage. It's been uh, unique reading the passage this way over the course of the week because never read it like this, never read just the arrest and trial of Jesus apart from without Peter's denial in the middle of that. Uh, and, and doing that, it kind of opened up some new things that I'd never seen before, but also uh, it reminded me of something in my own life, it, really something that I had quite truthfully forgotten. And as I was reading this and, and thinking about it, this, uh, this memory came flooding back in. I, 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 was, uh, I don't remember how old I was necessarily. I was probably somewhere around 10 years old. And we were visiting my grandparents, and uh, my cousin was uh, living with them at the time. And my granddad, who was a welder, had built for him this go-kart, is basically what you call it. It wasn't powered by anything. It was basically, you had to be on a hill to get going anywhere and, and stuff like that. But it was this go-kart, and it was so cool to like a 10-year-old, right? Like, yeah, it showed up, and it's all wanting to play with. And, and so they were like, okay, so you guys can play with this, but you cannot take it out on the street and go down the hill unless there's, you know, a parent there with you. And, you know, being 10-year-old boys... We listened to them, of course, and uh, it wasn't too long, though, until we were out on the street with this thing at the top of the hill that they lived on, ready to go down the hill. My, my cousin did it first, and he went down the hill, and it was awesome. It was so amazing. I couldn't wait to do it myself, and so we, he brought it back up the hill, and he kind of gave me some pointers and stuff. I was like, don't worry about this, man. I got this, and so I, I took off down the hill. And uh, pretty early on, it became apparent that uh, instead of staying in the middle of the road, I was veering to a side, and it was right towards the, uh, my grandparents' neighbor's car that was parked on the street. And everything in my mind was like, you need to turn, 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 and being a 10-year-old kid, I just froze. And I nailed the side of that car, went all down the side of it, scraped up the entire side of the car, and, uh, and, and so I, I get out of the go-kart, and I look back up the hill to where my cousin is standing. And before I can even say, so what do we do now? He takes off running down the side street and, like, co- totally left me hanging high, high and dry. And so I was standing there thinking, okay... Now, what do I do uh, about this thing? And uh, to make matters worse, uh, whenever he finally did come back and we, they were talking to both of us about like, what happened and everything, he goes, yeah, it was totally Matt's idea. I tried to talk him out of it. He wouldn't listen to me, anything. Like, totally sold me out. And uh, I learned two valuable lessons that day. Uh, the first was just merely a physics lesson, that if you don't stop yourself, something else will stop you, and that's never a good thing. Uh, but the second was about collisions, and that collisions in our life are abrupt and they are violent. And what makes a collision a collision is that we don't see it coming. And because we don't see it coming, we are going at a great speed, faster than maybe we would be going if we knew the dangers around us, and then we get hit. And the amazing thing about collisions, too, is that because they are so abrupt, they are so sudden, they are so violent, and they throw so much stuff up in the air, they actually reveal what has been hiding just below the surface all along. Because, you see, the thing with a collision is is we react to it once it happens, but we don't really have time to process and think, how do I want to react here? What do I want to do? And so it is a knee-jerk reaction, right? And knee-jerk reactions are the most natural reaction to us. 
They are exactly the way we are, the way we feel, what is going on inside of us. And it's stuff that if we had maybe a little bit longer to process and think about, we maybe wouldn't have said that. We maybe wouldn't have reacted that way. Like maybe my cousin wouldn't have like ran off down the other road and stuff. But that was his knee-jerk reaction. And so I also learned he wasn't somebody I could trust in a pinch. And so we have these collisions in our life, though. And they show us a lot about who we are and what's going on in us. And they show us some truths that maybe we don't like want to know about ourselves. Or, or maybe we think things are a different way. And this passage is a collision, what I realized. By taking out Peter's denial, you really see that, that there are these competing kingdoms that are coming into contact and colliding with one another. And it's chaos. And nobody saw this coming to this degree. And you see people all over the place reacting in certain ways that we're going to talk about together this morning. Because I think they're really important that as we look at how people are reacting, their knee-jerk reactions in this time of chaos... It's really stuff that we can apply to our own lives, and it gives us some help. Because the tough thing about collisions, too, is they reveal to us what's there, but it's already too late, right? Like, the, the moment's already come and passed, and like, it would be nice if we knew before the collision what was really going on underneath the surface. And if we look at this deep enough and we ask ourselves some hard questions, we can start to do that without having to go through the chaos of these climatic events in our life. We can say, what is it that I'm really living for? What is really going on inside of me? I mean, just take Pilate, for example. Pilate is this guy that we don't really know a ton about, right? Really, all we know about him in Scripture comes from this account, the, the account of Jesus' arrest and trial that we find in the Gospels. We don't get a whole lot of backstory on Pilate. We don't know much more about Pilate. And the funny thing about it is historians don't know a ton more either. Even when you go to the ancient historians like Josephus and some others, they know a few little things about Pilate, but they don't know a ton about his life. The one thing, though, that historians seem to be able to agree on is Pilate was a pretty brutal guy. Pilate's whole philosophy of ruling over Judea and keeping it in line, a place that was seen as, you know, prime for revolt, prime for rebellion, and all Rome really cared about was keeping it in order. They didn't want a lot of chaos going on in there. And so Pilate's whole job was to keep peace. And the way that he primarily did that was simply by brute force. The, most of the accounts of how Pilate did things are just about him overpowering rebellions and squabbles and all this stuff just simply by coming in with a lot of soldiers and wiping people out. He was a brutal dictator in that way. But that doesn't really seem like the guy we find here, does it? Because that doesn't seem to be the interaction he has with Jesus. Uh, he doesn't walk in and just say, okay... You seem to be causing an uproar. Let's kill you. He actually enters into a conversation with Jesus. We, we find in the second half of the, our passage this morning, in verses 28 through 40, uh, he seems to be somewhat thoughtful. He seems to actually kind of want to know what's going on. He asks Jesus some pretty deep, probing, important questions about who Jesus is. And that's definitely the case as we look at verses 37 through 40. Pilate asks Jesus, he says, so are you a king? And Jesus says, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Not really a question that you would think a guy that's just like, you know what, let's just shut this thing down as quickly as possible, would seem to ask, right? But then his response 
is pretty important. Pilate asks another question. He says, what is truth? That's a pretty rough question. A lot of scholars debate about, like, what is Pilate talking about? Like, what is his actual question here? What is truth? What, what is he talking about? And there's a few different options. And the one that I tend to side with and think of, a way of understanding Pilate's question is, what is truth? Pilate is saying, what does truth have to do with anything? It's a pretty cynical response, right? What does truth matter? That, yeah, I get that you say that you're about truth, and people that listen to the truth, they, they follow you. Basically, that sounds idealistic. And Pilate shows himself to be a cynic. And Pilate says, the truth doesn't matter. Truth isn't the most important thing. And the reason I think that's what Pilate is saying, because of the very next thing that he does. It says, and, he, and after he said that, he went back outside to the Jews, and he told them, I find no guilt in him. But hey, what's truth have to do with anything? You have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again. Not this man, but Barabbas. What's truth have to do with anything? We find that Pilate is simply trying to appease the Jews who are causing an uproar, trying to make sure that they don't cause more issues. Pilate is simply trying to last it out. Because what we find out about Pilate here is he is building someone else's kingdom. Pilate is basically your standard nine-to-five worker. He's there to get paid, to not cause too much trouble, and he's just hoping he can make it to the weekend. He has built his life around the idea that this is about as good as he can do, about as far as he can go. And so his only worry now is about Rome and what the emperor thinks, what he says, and ultimately what he does. Pilate's conviction, he is not a man of conviction. He is not a man that is propelled by truth by passion, by principles, his conviction only goes as far as his own self-survival. Can I last this out? Can I make it through this? Let's not cause too much trouble that might come back to bite me. So, hey, what's truth got to do with it? What's it got to do with anything? Who cares about the truth? The truth is not the most important thing. The most important thing is making sure that Caesar doesn't come down on me. And there's a lot of ways to do that. And one way to do that is to take those people out there who are calling for your head and just give it to them. Doesn't matter if you're innocent. Doesn't matter if you haven't done anything. Doesn't matter if you're the king you say you are. Who cares? I have someone else's kingdom to build. We see... When we're about, when, with Pilate here, being about building someone else's kingdom, truth gets sacrificed pretty easily for per- personal or public opinion. That we actually start living our lives, processing everything through what will blank think? What will they do? It could be leaders, personal heroes of ours that we have come to admire and aspire to be like. And so when something comes up, when uh, a a new uh, subject presents itself to us, we can't wait until they speak on the subject because we need to know what they think about it. When we find ourselves in that place living that way, 
we're building someone else's kingdom. Or, for some of us, it's not persons, but persons. That is groups. That our lives start to match up more with what the group says and what the group thinks about things. And we find ourselves aligning more with a political party's platform than we do with the word of God and what God says about things. Why? Because for some reason, we like what they say. We like how they think about this thing. And so that, that informs this other subject. And that informs this thing. And before we know it, our lives have been shaped more by the people around us than by God himself. We find ourselves in this place when we are looking to the words of other people before we ever look to God's word. It's so easy to do in our day and age especially because we have so much at our fingertips and, and so many voices that, that we find ourselves. I was actually talking to somebody about this this last week, realizing that in my own personal life that I will listen to other people's podcasts about doing ministry before I'll read scripture about doing ministry. I, I want to know what so-and-so thinks about what makes a good pastor before I read God's word about what makes a good pastor. It's so easy for ourselves to be in a place where we value the words of individuals around us and out there that have propped themselves up of some authority on the subject, even good, well-meaning, godly people, before we are willing to listen to and go to the source of truth, and that is God. And when we find ourselves in that place, and it can happen very slowly, very easily in our lives, the scary thing about it is, is we are, like Pilate, building someone else's kingdom. When we will allow people to influence us more than we will allow God to influence. And the scary thing, the problem with all of this, is that the moment you're willing to give up truth, the moment you're willing to say, what does truth have to do with it? What does God's word have to do with it? Because I like how they say it here, or I like how this makes me feel, or I like the way it fits with this other aspect of my own personal theology. The moment you're willing to give up God's truth because it's inconvenient, is the moment that you will sacrifice everything else. You will sacrifice your self-worth and the worth of other people. You will sacrifice the mission and the calling that God has given you to be a disciple and to go and make disciples. You will sacrifice literally everything else because what we are, who we are, what we do is built only on the foundation of the truth of God and what God says about the world and how the world really is. But in so many of our lives, just like Pilate, we get beat down by the mundane day in and day out. And we think, okay, if I can just make it to the weekend, and if I can get enough weekends and make it to retirement, that's what really matters. And we resign ourselves to simply building someone else's kingdom because we say it's too hard to stand for the truth. It's too difficult to be set apart from our culture. And so I'll just do this for now. But when we do that, little do we know, we're giving up everything else that's been given to us by God. It's not just Pilate we see here doing this. He, he is building someone else's kingdom. But there's other people in this passage. Uh, there's a group of religious leaders. Uh, there's Peter and there's Judas. Not necessarily like three groups of people that you would put together normally, right? Normally we'd say, okay, yeah, like Judas and the religious leaders, and then like Peter's over here, Peter's different. And yet, when we look at this passage together, the first 11 verses and then the last 12, they actually have a lot in common. We actually see the religious leaders being willing to seek to kill Jesus. 
right? And that's not a big, like, hopefully that's not a shock to you guys at this point. Like, it's been like, John's talked about this before, right? Like, John's been like, hey, they're going to do this. They're plotting this stuff and everything like that. So the fact that we get to this point and the religious leaders are, like, finally putting into action shouldn't be surprising to us. And we know why they're doing this. Because Jesus has disrupted their status quo. They had things basically the way they wanted it. And they were like, this is good. This is great. Let's just keep things moving along. And Jesus comes along and says, yeah, you, you guys are off. And they realize if Jesus has his way, if his kingdom that he's talking about comes, it is going to wreck their kingdom. And they feel like they're losing it. And so what do they do? They say, this guy's got to go. We see Judas here betraying Jesus. And we've kind of been told since the very beginning, or, or at least halfway through John, that Judas is kind of a sleazeball. Like Judas has been stealing money and he's not to be trusted and everything like that. We've been tipped off to this already in John too. We don't know why Judas ultimately betrays Jesus. Maybe if we were talking about it just simply in motivational terms, we might say that Judas saw himself being able to gain something by being with Jesus, mainly feeding his greed that seemed to be the thing that propelled him in his life. We're told that he stole money, and so he saw Jesus as a source to this money, to to be able to better himself in the financial arena of his life. But maybe he was getting to a point where he was realizing Jesus wasn't really about that stuff. And he wasn't going to get out of it what he thought. And so he saw another group, the religious leaders of his day, as a group that would feed that for him. And so he goes to them, runs to them, realizes there's more money to be made with them. And so because of that, he easily sells Jesus out. Then there's Peter. Like I said before, I don't think we would normally lump Peter in with these other two. And yet there's Peter cutting off Malchus's ear. And in that we see that Peter's had a very specific idea of what Jesus will do and what will be. And also a very specific idea, not too unlike maybe Judas, that Peter had a certain place and certain benefits in who Jesus would be as the Messiah. And Peter starts to see what he's been working towards, slipping away. And that's because all three of these guys, all three of these groups, have been building their own kingdom. A kingdom where they have a very specific idea of what's going to happen and what it's going to look like. A, very, a kingdom that is built on the idea of it will be better if my way comes about. It's also kingdoms that are built on flimsy foundations and, yet they, and so they start to, be, start to crumble around them. And what we see them doing as their kingdoms are threatened, as they start to come down, is they are willing to do whatever it takes to try to hold on to what little bit of it they can, even if it means hurting other people. The Jewish leaders are willing to kill Jesus. Judas is willing to do the same. Peter sees the Messiah that he has put his hope in, that he has so much riding on, being detained, being taken away. And Jesus can't do what he needs to do for Peter if he's in jail or better yet, dead. And so Peter is willing to do what maybe we thought Peter would never do and harm someone else in order that his kingdom might survive. One of the best ways to know whether or not you are building your own kingdom or other people around you are building their own kingdom is that we begin to see people only as a means to an end, not as intrinsically of value in and of themselves. We see people as a way to get our way. And if they get in our way, we'll do whatever we have to do. 
And so when we are about building our own kingdoms, people get hurt. Because the collisions that we have in our lives are not go-karts and cars kind of collisions. They're people collisions. We live in relationship with other people. We live around other people. And if we are about building our own kingdom, it is going to come into contact with them. And when it does, they either help us expand our kingdom or they hurt us. And if they hurt us, if they threaten it, we will do the unthinkable. Desperate times call for desperate measures. And it sounds like, ah, no, maybe I wouldn't do it. But this makes a lot of sense because if we're about our own kingdom, we have a lot riding on it. See, kingdoms aren't these little things. Kingdoms are big things. They're like all-in things, 100% things. There's no straddling the line and saying, well, let's see how this thing works out. There's a vision. And the vision is always that where we are now is not as good as where we will be. The vision is always, if I had it my way, it would be the right way. And so we propel that vision. We push that vision. And feeding into that vision are values, values that we have based our life on. And so we are 100% into this. We have given up things in our life to see this come about. And if if that is threatened, if that is compromised, we will fight for it. People get hurt. The people actually closest to us, they get hurt when we are all about building our own kingdom. It's striking that the people we're talking about here that are building their very own kingdom are the ones that are actually the closest to Jesus. I mean, that's easy to say about Peter and Judas, but even the religious leaders, if you think about just back through John's gospel, even the other gospels, the religious leaders are the ones that hear Jesus' teaching more than anybody else outside of the twelve. They have more interactions with Jesus other than the 12 disciples. They are, as far as people outside of the group of disciples, the ones who have heard and interacted with and been around Jesus the most. And this should be a point in which we stop ourselves and we say, wow. Because we tend to think that merely proximity leads to alignment. And if I'm just around it enough, it means I agree with it. But the truth is, is that being in the same room as Jesus doesn't mean you want the same things as Jesus. It's so easy in our world to say because we go to church week after week, I'm in the same room as Jesus, so I must want the same things as Jesus. It's so easy to say, well, I I serve faithfully, so that obviously, just assume I want the same things as Jesus because I'm serving with Jesus. These men, the religious leaders, Judas, Peter, they were around Jesus more than anyone else, and yet they were still building their own kingdom. They were about their own thing and their own ideas and what needed to happen. And so instead of just assuming because we can see him and we can touch him and we've heard from him and we've seen amazing things done by Jesus, that we're all in alignment, we agree with him, we have to be willing to constantly be coming back to the source and asking ourselves some difficult questions. Better yet, being willing to ask the Holy Spirit to search us out. 
Because we're not really good at digging to the depths of our soul because we don't really know what all's in there. But the Holy Spirit's great at this. And so being willing to say, will you come along and show me, ask me these questions, am I building my own kingdom when I think I'm all about what Jesus is about? Do I insist on how worship happens? Do I insist on where community takes place? Or do I insist on when I get to share with people about Jesus? I, I might be the only one, but I can, I can tell you there have been a number of times when I've been talking to somebody, and it's usually like in a checkout or something like that, and I ask the person how their day is going, and the person, you know, you just know there's a lot going on in their life because they just like open up to you. They say the thing that's like really uncomfortable and you're not expecting anybody to say to you, right? Like, actually, my life's really difficult right now. And you're like, oh, I wasn't expecting this. Okay. Um, and I say, well, okay, I'll, I'll be praying for you. I don't even know if I say that sometimes. And I walk away. And God says, hey, that was an opportunity for you to share. But I think, well, but I'm really busy, and I got somewhere to be. I don't have time for it right then. I have to wonder, if I'm insisting on when, am I building my own kingdom? Another way to check this and ask ourselves is, is that we actually start to see people differently. We see people as either helping us or merely in our way. That we actually have an adversarial mindset with people. That people are either for me or they are against me and there is no in between. And one wrong word, one cross thought, something that doesn't align with what I think means you are against me. But I think the thing that tells us that we may be building our own kingdom the most is that we are hesitant to partner with other people. We will not trust others. Why? Because it's our kingdom. And we know best. We're actually the only ones that know. We're the only ones that can be trusted. And if we're building our kingdom, that makes sense. But if we're building God's kingdom, it doesn't because God's kingdom is transferable. God's kingdom is shared. God's kingdom includes others. If you have trouble trusting people, if you're hesitant to partner with people, if you don't believe that it will get done the way it needs to, it's pretty good idea, indication, you might be building your own kingdom. We see these guys, we, we see Pilate trying to build someone else's kingdom. We, we, we see this, you know, the, the group of religious leaders and Judas and Peter, and they're, they're scrambling around and they're trying to build their own kingdom and, and hang on to what it is they feel like they're, they're losing that's slipping through their fingers. And then there's Jesus. And he just looks totally different here, doesn't he? It's like Jesus is this like constant in the midst of the storm and everything's swirling around him and he's just standing there. We see where people are frantic. He's in control, right? The, the, the guards, they, they come up, and, and it's Jesus that steps out, and he says, who are you looking for? In John's gospel, we don't get Judas kissing Jesus. Why? Because John is saying Jesus is in control. He's the one initiating. He's the one guiding. So he says, who are you guys looking for? And they fall back. Like, they can't even, they're overwhelmed at this guy. 
And then Jesus is like still again, instead of being like, okay, well, we're good here and walking off, he says, who are you guys looking for? Because Jesus is in control, but not only that, where people are treating each other as expendable commodities, cutting ears off, killing people, arresting people, right? It's Jesus that is protecting people. He says, who are you looking for? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. And then Jesus says, okay, I'm him. I told you I'm him, so let these guys go. He is protecting his disciples. Where we might be tempted to bend in the face of Pilate, knowing what is coming, knowing if we stand firm, what will happen to us, Jesus stands for truth. I think if everything else in the Gospels got lost, and this was the only, this passage right here was the only thing we knew about Jesus. That we just had this. We read these verses and like this is all we know about the guy. We would say that's somebody I want to be like. Because what Jesus is showing us, what we see as all these kingdoms are colliding around him, is he is still about the thing he's been telling us he's about since the beginning. And that is he is building God's kingdom. And this makes a difference in your life, believe it or not. We like to think that the things we build up, influence, we influence them. But they influence us and build us up just as much. Jim Rahn was an uh, entrepreneur, American entrepreneur, kind of a motivational speaker as well. He once said, if you go to work on your goals, your goals will go to work on you. If you go to work on your plan, your plan will go to work on you. Whatever good things we build end up building us. Whatever it is you're building today, it's affecting you as much as you're affecting it. It's influencing how you think and how you live and how you see people and how you see yourself and how you see God and your role in this world and where this world is going just as much as you think you're influencing it. This is huge because God's kingdom, as we see in this passage, is set up totally differently than all the other ones the world has to offer us. Whether it's someone else's or our own, God's kingdom is different. Hang on to that. Set up differently. It's one where victory is achieved through death, self-sacrifice. By dying to yourself, we're told Jesus came not to be served, but to serve. That's how victory happens. That's how love is expressed. It's a kingdom where instead of taking it for ourselves with force, we freely give it away, and through that, people are saved. It's a kingdom that holds grace and truth equally. Instead of running to one of the two extremes that we so often do, we're told that Jesus has come in grace and truth. And so instead of being a people in a kingdom that is just like wishy-washy, moralistic, feel good, everybody's okay, you're okay, I'm okay, that's all good. It holds to the deep truth that we are sinners and in need of a Savior and yet at the same time offers the grace that we can have that very thing we desperately need. It is a kingdom where an omission of guilt is not simply met with judgment, but an omission of guilt is met with the hope of transformation. 
That at the very moment you say, I have done this, instead of being looked at as all the other kingdoms of the world do, and say, yes, you're guilty, and so now you deserve death. It is a kingdom that says, yes, you have done it, and now here is life. Life that is free of that. Life that is different. It's a kingdom that seeks to overwhelm us with love, not just a set of values that we can't live up to. A set of values where we're told this is what you shouldn't do and don't do these things. And if you do these things, it means you're this thing and it's a bad thing. But we're not even given the list most of the times. We're just like, I don't know what to say. I don't know what to do. So I'm just not going to say anything. It's a kingdom that says you, first and foremost, instead of slapping you with a label after what you've done, you get the label on the front end and you are a child of God and you are dearly loved and you are given great power and great responsibility. Ed would like that. It's a Spider-Man quote. I didn't say that in the first service. I, yeah, I, yeah. So there's this interesting thing. We're going to talk, talk about Colossians here in a second. And I hadn't planned on sharing this, but I will. In Colossians, there's this list. There's a list of things we shouldn't do. And so often we look at that list, I think, the way that we look at just the kingdoms of the world, the way they give us lists. And it's like, here's the things you shouldn't do. Good luck trying not to do them, right? And we look at that list and we're like, wow, that's, that's, that's hard. And the whole idea of Colossians is, here's a list of the things you shouldn't do. You're not going to be able to not do it. The great news is, there's Jesus Christ, and so now you don't do it. That's the kingdom of God and how it's set up differently. That you stop trying and you start realizing he's the one that has done it. That's the kind of kingdom we need to be building. That's the kind of kingdom Jesus is about here. That is what sets Jesus apart from everybody else in this passage. Not that he's God, that helps, but that he's been about building God's kingdom. Not his own and not someone else's. And it's the kingdom of God that we need. It's the kingdom of God that the world so desperately needs. And we pour ourselves into it and it shapes us more than we shape it. i got to be honest with you. I have struggled all week long about how to end this sermon. I have not known how to. And so um, I still don't know. That's probably not a good thing since I already preached this sermon, right? Um, And so I've been thinking all week long, like, what is it like, what is it you say? And I was just like, okay, so let's get, like, super practical and just say this is how you do, like, because the idea is, like, the, the tough thing about collisions, right, is that we know, like, what's in us after the fact. And wouldn't it be nice to know before the fact, right? And so how, how is it, like, what can we be asking ourselves? What can we be looking at that we, we can take stock of and say, well, maybe this is what I'm about. Am I about building someone else's kingdom, my own kingdom, or am I about building God's kingdom? I, I'd like to be about this one. So how do I know if I'm about that? And so I thought, okay, I'm just going to give them a list, like, and I came up with a pretty long list of like to say hey like here's ways to know today are you building God's kingdom and I was like okay that'll get boring they'll be bored and they're already bored and so I I boiled the list down to three and I was like okay three signs that you're building God's kingdom and and I actually I I was sitting with uh, Justin and uh, Dave this morning I told them these three things and then they walked out of the room and I was like okay three still too many and so I've got one thing for you this morning and it's not even a sign it is one surefire way to know if you are building God's kingdom. You know you're building God's kingdom if you are excited. Yay, right? <laughs> Gotta say, I'm worried about you guys. <laughs> um, 
And then Jake in the first service yelled at you, there you go. And I said, we got one. And so um, you're excited. Let me tell you why. Let me tell you why. If you are excited, you know you are building God's kingdom. It's in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20, where Paul, talking to that church, he says, He, talking about Jesus Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him, but also for him. That's exciting. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. You are excited because all things are being reconciled to God. All things are coming back into his kingdom and his will. That is exciting. The victory is won, and we are excited because God is presently ushering in his kingdom. I was reading about this, and uh, they said, uh, a way to understand it is in... um, in World War II, there were two big days. There was D-Day, and there was VE Day, Victory Day, Victory in Europe Day. And he said, basically, if you put ourselves in that context, D-Day has happened, the victory's won, we're just on the mop-up effort now. And that's exciting. We're getting to usher in God's kingdom. And while it's not all together, it's not all the way it should be, it is happening. It is where it is going, and nothing is going to overcome that. And you're excited for what is happening now. If you're about building God's kingdom, you're excited for what's going on in your life. You're excited for what's happening in the lives of the people around you. But you're even more excited for what will happen even when you are out of the picture. Because guess what? God's kingdom keeps advancing even when you're long gone. God's kingdom keeps moving forward. Your kingdom doesn't. Someone else's might not, but God's kingdom does. And so you can actually be excited about what is to come. Jesus was this way. If we go back, and we touched on this last week, if you go back to chapter 15 in John, Jesus is telling them, what's about to happen is really exciting because why? I'm leaving, but the Holy Spirit's coming, and you guys are not going to believe the kind of stuff that you're going to do through him and that he's going to do in you, and it's going to be amazing that Jesus can be excited about what is to come even when he is gone. And that if we are building God's kingdom, we are a people who believe that in Jesus the best is yet to come. And that will continue with you in the picture or without you. And that is exciting. It's exciting because God is raising up a new generation of leaders and servants just the way he did in your generation. And it's all not going to be lost. I tell you what, I'm not that old. I'm 32 But I am finally at the age where I can look back, I can look at the generation coming up, and I see now how easy it is to think, oh, wow, we're in trouble. I get that now. Like, I totally get that now. I used to think, man, this is crazy. Like, just stop. And, like, now I see it. I'm like, they don't believe the same things. They don't do the same things. I don't know if they shower. Like, all that kind of stuff. Like, this thing's going to go to pot, right? 
But if we are about building up God's kingdom, we know that that's not the case. And we know that that's not going to happen. And God is going to do the same types of things he did. It will look different. It will be different. But it will still be God's kingdom. And that is a great thing. That God is going to raise up generations coming behind us, just like he did in our generation, just like he did in the generation before ours. That is exciting. It doesn't have to be on our terms. It doesn't have to be our way. It's because it's God's way. But you're also excited about what God will do when you move on from places, not just when you die. That you can look at your former job and you can want the best for them and you can be happy for them. And you don't have to sit there and say, man, I hope it falls apart when I leave and then they'll know how valuable I was. You can look at your former church and you can want God to keep expanding the kingdom even in your absence. Because it's not your kingdom you're building, it's God's kingdom. That even when your kids move out, you can hope they don't come back. But better yet, you can hope and be excited about the fact that their lives will not fall apart and then they'll know how much you, they needed you. That you can want them to flourish and do well. This doesn't mean being excited in this way about these things does not mean that it's all sunny days and happy thoughts all the time. This, this passage, I would not read this passage and say a main theme word for that passage is excitement. Like, I don't think that that, I don't, yeah. The, Jesus doesn't have a smile on as he's walking through this trial. Building kingdoms is hard. It is full of trials and transitions and changes and difficult things. Blood, sweat, and tears all over the place. But I do believe that Jesus' excitement about what is to come is what undergirds this entire passage and keeps him moving forward because he is about building God's kingdom, not his own. It is God's kingdom that keeps us moving forward because we know that we are putting our life and our hope and our efforts in something that is eternal and not something that will crumble around us. And we can be excited about that. So today, the surefire way, just ask yourself, am I excited? Like, can I, like, sum up my spiritual life and just say excitement is the word that sums that up? If it's not, it's time to check yourself and say, have I been about building another kingdom other than God's?